0: All right. Good morning, Mercy House. Good morning. Thank you. Good. Someone's awake. That's good to hear. (laughs) I did too. We're ready to roll. Oh my goodness. Too ready to roll. Look at that. Uh, My name is Tommy. I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. And uh, we're going to be continuing on in our Generation Next sermon series with really only a, a few Sundays left before we're going to switch gears and go into our late summer early fall uh, sermon series. So if you've been following along, whether you've been here in the building or listening on our live stream or listening to the podcast, what you'd know is that we're, we're talking about parenting, and not strictly just in the biological sense of parenting, but also in the spiritual sense of parenting. We've been trying to answer how do we as a community prepare this next generation, both practically, uh, but perhaps maybe even more importantly, spiritually. And this is a conversation that we've been, uh, we've been having as we take a look through Scripture to really try to glean wisdom and instruction on how to raise up this ge- uh, next generation of Christ followers. And so last week, specifically, we looked at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which honestly, I think, could have been a sermon series in and of itself, Uh, and based on some of the conversations I had after that, I think it probably should be, Um, but what we did was we combed through the text, and, and, and we looked at the exhortations that were directed at different people in specific life stages in the church of Crete those who are older men, those who are younger men, those who are younger women, and those who are older women. And I know that that sermon for some people really fired you up. You were really amped up. You were ready to go. Others, it was really frustrating to hear. It was really challenging to kind of process through some of the things that were talked about. And, and I think that this is always going to be the case. So when we tackle specifically passages that speak into gender and gender roles, And it's not because of this specific, unique, special cultural moment that we live in right here. It's not because of the baggage that we collectively carry as a community in Amherst, Massachusetts, in the United States, in the year 2021. Nor is it just because of any of our own individual baggage of experiences in our families, um, in, in the communities, maybe in the churches that we grew up in. I think it's important for us to not believe the lie that it's especially hard today to talk about gender, because to be honest, it's always been really hard to talk about gender. Scripture has challenged really every society's understanding of gender and gender roles since the day that they were written. In fact, Scripture has really challenged almost all of every societal construct uh, through the centuries because the reality is that we live in a sinful, fallen world, and the kingdom of heaven that we read about in Scripture is not uh, the kingdom of this world that we live in. And so my exhortation to you, and even what I was hearing to myself, is to not harden your heart, to not grumble as as the topics that, that come up that might hit a nerve or might trigger things that are close to your heart, but to lean in to God, to let God heal some wounds, to reshape our hearts and our minds from whatever baggage we have from our family experience or our community experience or even our church experience, and then to lean into our church family here by having conversations about the things that challenge you and that frustrate you, knowing that and and also trusting that the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us can transform our hearts, can renew our minds, and and ultimately can shape our church community as a whole for the better. And so I I was really encouraged by having lots of conversations with people. Uh, Even though people were in kind of frustrated places, it was great to have those conversations and to work through these things. At the end of the day, last Sunday, I-, I hope that one of the primary things that you took away is what we are all called to as followers of Christ. So, Robert pulled out four commitments that we're exhorted to keep as, co- as a covenant community of believers here at Mercy House. And that's regardless of what gender you are, what age you are, or what life season you're in right now. And the first of those, I want to go through these real quick. The first of those is a commitment to sound doctrine, the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in everything that we do, and having a correct understanding of that gospel. Two would be living obedient lives to Jesus, so not just coming here, hearing the gospel, not just reading your Bible and understanding what's there, but actually living it out, not just with your head, but with your heart, and also with your legs to go and to do the things that we're called to do. The third was the prioritization of the home, which in essence was uh, Understanding that the most important thing that that, that is your ministry is your immediate domain. The thing that you have immediate access to in your home is your first ministry, and prioritizing that as such. And then the fourth would be a, a commitment to training the next generation, which really is this entire sermon series, but it's one of the commitments that we as a church want to hold to this idea of expanding the kingdom beyond just you, that you here this morning, it's not just about you, that God is going to use you to build his kingdom well beyond what what you're doing here this morning in your own little zone. So those are the four things, and I want us to remember these because we're going to be building off of this framework this morning as we continue the conversation. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 28 if you're not there already, and as you turn there, what I want to do is I want to introduce this passage to you. In the final verses, the Gospel of Matthew, we see a resurrected Jesus Christ. So having just defeated death and finishing the work required for our redemption, Jesus gathers his disciples one last time in what is often referred to as the Great Commission, the Great Commission. See, the idea of a commissioning is the granting of power and authority to someone else. When you charge someone with a task, but then you also give them the authority and the power to execute it. So one way to grasp this concept is thinking about a police officer. So there's a process for a police officer uh, of educating them, of training them. There's a public ceremony that includes a commissioning of that person to then be an active officer of the law. I can't walk out there right now with a police baton and start policing the streets of Amherst, right? Right, you need to know that. Like, None of us can go out there, unless you are a police officer, we can't just go out there and start policing the streets, not without some serious repercussions. But police officers are charged with the task of policing. They're given power and authority to fulfill that task as well. And and that's what's happening in this passage here this morning. When we first become believers, we are publicly recognized and, and ceremonialized in baptism, and we receive education and training through discipleship And we're called to then go and make disciples as our primary duty, and given the power and the authority to do so. That's the gist of this passage. And this morning, what we're going to be talking about are three things. One, what is discipleship? Two, how do we make disciples? And three, what motivates discipleship? Three things. So we're going to start in in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted. And so this passage begins with the disciples meeting Jesus on the mountain where they would receive this commissioning and what we see is 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 that the people arrive some are worshiping Jesus and others are doubting. And you've got people who have seen the resurrected Jesus, who have heard this directive to to come meet him on this mountain, and as people arrive, they're kind of in two camps here. Those who are worshiping Jesus, meaning they're praising him, they're revering him, they're adoring him, and then you've got this other group of people who are doubting him. And doubting what, you might ask? Well, they're, they're doubting the fact that this is actually the resurrected Jesus, which would be reasonable, but there's a lot at stake. See, if it's not him, if this is an imposter or or maybe Jesus didn't actually die, maybe he hid away for three days or whatever scenario there might be for us for this to not be Jesus, um, if that were the case, then everything that has transpired in the previous three years of his ministry is meaningless. Every word in the last 27 chapters of Matthew, like this isn't just doubting the weather report for the day. If this were not true, then every passage in Scripture would be this weak fabrication of fiction on a pretty epic scale. If this isn't Jesus Christ standing on this mountain, the the resurrected Messiah, the the Son of God, the propitiation for our sins, the Redeemer of all of mankind, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then it's time to pack it up and find another horse to bet on. Find another little g-god to put our hope in if this isn't the resurrected Christ. But if this man who stands on the mountain is the resurrected Jesus Christ, everything is different. Everything changes for the lives of those who are worshiping, and it's about to be radically transformed. Their lives, their futures will, will be radically transformed forever and ever after that point. Nothing is different for, here, uh, for us here at Mercy House this morning see we're all here we're meeting together to see about this jesus and just like the crowds who were who who were doing that on this day of the passage that we're reading and some of us here are believing that jesus uh was who he said he was being the fulfillment of all scripture which is leading us to worship him that's why this, this room a second ago was loud with worship to Jesus, and we're doing it out loud, we're doing it in song, we're also doing it in our hearts this morning as we yield and we surrender our innermost being to Him. None of us have our doubts, and I believe these verses made it into Scripture to show us that, that it's okay to be here and to be doubting. I believe I believe that it's also helping us understand that Scripture, the Scriptures are real. We were just talking right right before this, um, and Justin was saying, "Man, this is one of those passages where if you're really trying to like lock in uh, and seal the fact that Jesus is real, would you really include this moment of doubt?" Well, it's here for us to see. The reality is, doubting is not evil. It doesn't have to be excommunicated or or eradicated. And what we'll find, though, is that this command and this comfort of Jesus in this passage is directed to those who do believe and worship. The discipleship, or or the making of disciples, it begins with belief in Jesus and worship of Him. And notice how these two things aren't mutually exclusive. You cannot truly believe that Jesus is who He said He was and not worship Him. And at the same time, you can't truly worship Jesus without believing who He was and and, and who He said He was. And once you believe in Jesus, uh, once you worship Jesus, then you're ready to receive the commissioning that we're about to see in these next few few verses. But discipleship begins with belief and with worship. It's important. Like, belief and worship of Jesus must precede the making of disciples, because if it doesn't, the command to make disciples is not an overflow, but it becomes an obligation. It's not something that's life-giving, but it's actually life-draining. Instead of increasing faith and producing more worship, making disciples, or even the invitation to make disciples, can make us resentful, can burn us out, can, can spiral us downward away from belief and worship. Discipleship has to begin with belief and worship in Jesus Christ. And I'm not just making this up. We see this clearly communicated by Jesus himself in the way that he he structures these next couple of verses. Look at verse 18 in the beginning of 19. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I want to pause there just so you can see. Uh, The command to go and make disciples hinges on the previous statement which is that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And this is an incredibly profound and and powerful statement. Verse 18 is is not one of those verses that you just gloss over. You need to read it closely. Let me read it one more time. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What this is communicating is the role of Jesus in the cosmos. Jesus Jesus is not just a good person. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just an enlightened philosopher. And Jesus does not command authority exclusively here on Sunday morning or in our family groups on Wednesday evening or in our discipleship groups whenever they meet. His authority is not to be reduced to the morning quiet times that we have or, or maybe in those moments of deep need and we reach out to Him for prayer. Jesus' authority is not over just the portion of our income uh, that we tithe to the church. Jesus' authority is over all of our finances, every dollar, every cent, every penny that we have command over. His authority is over our employer, over our workspace, over our, over our workplace, over every industry, over every global market structure. His authority is over every institution, every single government, over all areas of academia, of healthcare, even leisure. His authority is over our provision of food on a daily basis, the shelter that we have, even the weather that's outside. His authority is over our planet. His authority is over all planets, all moons, all stars, all galaxies, all nebulas, The entire cosmos. Jesus' authority is over our little church here in Amherst, Massachusetts. His authority is over each of us, each of our lives, in this moment until the day that we die and extending into eternity. All authority in every corner of existence, in the physical and the spiritual realm, has been given over to Jesus. That's authority. That's authority that we have no comprehension or understanding of in our lives outside of Jesus himself. And when we believe that mercy house, when we encounter Jesus in all of his mighty authority as those people did on that mountain in this passage, how can we do anything else but worship? How can we do anything else but worship? This verse is the catalyst for discipleship and mission. It's the spark that ignites the hearts of those uh, who believe, and it drives them to worship. And then, based on this reality, as Jesus says, therefore, which means in light of this fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, then go and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is initiated from belief and worship of Jesus Christ as the God and the King of all things. And so from this place of belief and worship, Jesus calls his disciples on that mountain to go, which for some people listening would have been a little strange. It would have been strange. See, they're expecting Jesus, once accomplishing everything he set out to do, uh, really to gather everybody together and and, and to take them into his kingdom for all of eternity. The work is done, right, Jesus? So it's time to celebrate and time to fellowship, I think this is kind of like a wedding, right? So you sit through the ceremony, you listen to the sermon, you see this beautiful union of a man and a woman as they enter into this covenant relationship, and and there's this grand pronouncement, right? They say, "By by the authority vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and then you go to the reception, and you celebrate, and you fellowship, and you dance, you eat, and you enjoy. See, that's what the disciples on the mountain are expecting. But imagine the bride and the groom immediately after the ceremony saying, go, get on, get out of here. Right? That would be weird. That would be strange. That's not what we would expect. For us Christians, the ceremony is complete. But we have this opportunity to invite others into the reception. And as Jesus sends out his disciples from the mountain, instead of just kind of levitating them all into heaven in that moment, Here's what this moment shows us about discipleship. The first thing is that discipleship is the mission of God. Discipleship is the mission of God. It's both his heart and his method. And let me tell you what I mean. We see that mission is the heart of God because God's heart is to seek and to save the lost. We see this throughout all of Scripture that God is a God about reaching the nations. The Old Testament doesn't just tell a story of Israel as a people being rescued, being redeemed, and then just made a people for their own sake. God's heart is that Israel would be a kingdom of priests who then would go and bless all of the nations. Evangelism and discipleship are not like these New New Testament afterthoughts. It's not Jesus wondering, hmm, how can I make this thing go viral, right? Like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have ten people... I guess 12 people, share the gospel with 12 other people, and those 12 other people go share the gospel with 12 other people. Like, that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't concocting something new. God is a missionary God with a missionary heart to seek and to save the lost in every nook, cranny, and corner of the earth. But it's not just His heart. It's also His method. Consider for a second that you— have been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. I know, this is like a dangerous exercise for us to do right now, right? But before you start thinking about what car you would drive or what, like, superpower you would give yourself, right, uh, I I want you to imagine that your truest, deepest heart's desire is that all people would come to know Christ. So surely, with all of your authority and all of your power, you could just snap your fingers like Thanos, and everyone would just believe in an instant. And they would just not just believe, but then also worship Jesus, right? That could happen. And let's make it very clear that Jesus could have done that. Like, if all authority and all power is in His hands, He could have snapped His fingers and everyone would believe and worship. He does not uh, brush up against like, the limit of his power and his authority and, and kind of has to hand things off to his disciples to then go spread the good news of the gospel. That's not what's happening. God calls us to make disciples because it's not only his heart, but it's also the method by which he has ordained the process of salvation to happen. And I can't tell you exactly why, and, and, and we don't have time this morning to dive into some of the philosophical challenges of free will, God's sovereignty, the problem of evil. Those are all things I would love to talk about, so you can email me. We can grab coffee and talk about those things. But what I see in Scripture is a God delighting in the process of using His disciples to carry the good news of the gospel to the next generation. He loves co-laboring with us, And and he loves inviting us into this grand vision for building his kingdom, which for many of us is hard to imagine. Those of us, especially with kids, know that if there's like a big project that you're working on, you don't invite your kids to do it. Like kids make things much harder, they make things take a lot longer, and they typically just make a mess of everything you're doing. And you would do it a lot faster if you yourself just did it. But I thank God that the mission of God is not about efficiency. God's heart is all about making disciples. He Himself sends His own Son to be a missionary in the world. And He delights, He loves, He cherishes when those whom He rescues inherit the same heart as His. When His children love to reach the unreached, to be a light in the darkness, and to participate in the same heavenly occupation that He Himself took up. Discipleship is the mission of God. Discipleship is also the vocation of every single Christian. It's our calling. We see this in verse 19 as as an authoritative command, perhaps maybe the most authoritative command ever given, as Jesus is flexing His credentials right before making this command. He says to go and to make disciples. Go and make disciples. So for those of us who believe, who worship Jesus as king of the cosmos and the great redeemer, we're given this authoritative command to go and to make disciples. Jesus doesn't make any distinctions here. This command goes out for all to hear for all of time. This was not just a command for the apostles or the people who were there. Uh, And if that were true, what you'd have is only one additional generation of believers, and then they'd be like, well this was for the people who were there and not for me, so I guess this ends, this movement, this Christian movement ends with this generation. No, that's not what's happening. That's not the heart or the method of God. But this command extends to the end of the age, as with Jesus' accompanying promise that He'd be with them, and He'd be with us as we do this. It's important for us to make sure that we don't believe the lie that evangelism and discipleship are just for, for the paid staff workers, or that it's reserved for campus ministry staff who call you asking for 50 bucks a month to support them in their disciple making, or that making disciples is for those who are serving overseas, who are clearly called to be uh, full-time vocational missionaries. Nor is it for those who just have the extra time and the energy to do it, who have enough margin in their life to go. Jesus commands everyone to go. And to use the language from last week, he's calling older men, he's calling younger men, he's calling younger women, and he's calling older women to go and to make disciples, regardless of how full your schedule is or how busy your life is. In our small group uh, of parents, we're reading this book called Family Discipleship. It's been great. If you're in a family and you're wondering, how do I do discipleship as a family, I highly recommend it. It's called Family Discipleship, and it's looking uh, really at, at the approach of discipleship as a family. And the author says, most people, most people are very busy, pulled in many different directions. If it seems like you don't have enough time to engage in discipleship, the opposite is actually true. You don't have enough time for overtime at work or any of the other myriad of activities and other commitments if you don't have time for this. It's flipping it on its head. So, Mercy House, we are not employees first and disciple makers second. We're not business owners first or students first and then disciple-makers second. We're we're not even spouses or parents first and disciple-makers second. Our primary calling, our vocation, as we see Jesus authoritatively commanding it here in verse 19, is to be a disciple-maker, to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so for those of us who are already making disciples, awesome, like that's great, don't hear me trying to heap something new into your life. And as I talk about application and how to engage more fully as a disciple maker, please don't come to me after and say, Tommy, I'm already doing this and, and I can't possibly add another thing to my schedule. And, and there's this thing, I think, that, that's been happening at Mercy House for the last couple years, maybe longer, for, for at least the time that I've been able to discern it, where people will feel like they're not actually doing discipleship unless they do it in the programming at Mercy House. And that's just not true. That's a lie that Satan wants to use to diminish your personal ministry and to divide the church. It's a lie that needs to be killed, and it's a lie that needs to stop being spread. So if you're making disciples awesome, Like encourage other brothers and sisters around you to take up their heavenly vocation tell the stories of what God is doing as you go and as you make disciples. So it's not my goal to make you feel bad for not doing something that you're already doing. And so I just want to be really, really clear, really clear. If you are already making disciples organically in your life or through whatever structure or system that that is happening in your life, I want to encourage you. Like, Be encouraged. Keep doing that. Keep experiencing the joy and the fellowship with Jesus as you continue taking up your heavenly calling as a disciple-maker. So discipleship is the mission of our God. It's the the delight of His heart. Uh, It's the method that He has ordained to build His kingdom here on earth. And making disciples is the primary vocation of every Christian. Mercy House, this is why we value discipleship so much here at Mercy House. It's why we, we want to spend as much resources and energy uh, into equipping our members and, and really encouraging a culture of discipleship here. Oh, that we would be a church that is marked by our belief and our worship in Jesus, which leads to a, a tenacity in obeying Jesus' command to make disciples. What an incredible church that would be. Like, I long to see our church grow into a church like this, knowing that this is the type of church that advances God's kingdom through the very gates of hell, a community of believers who worship Christ and take His command to make, uh, make disciples seriously. So how do we do it? Discipleship is the mission of God, it's the vocation of every believer, but how do we practically make disciples? I think this is maybe one of the first places where we as christians can get stalled in our heavenly vocation of making disciples we simply don't know how which is reasonable like you you can't expect anyone to do something they don't know how to do but jesus doesn't have this expectation when he calls his disciples to make disciples because one uh, these disciples have been discipled by jesus so it's kind of like a swim teacher saying now that i've taught you how to swim right like you were there for that i taught you how you know how to swim now go and teach other people how to swim they have this frame of reference they have this uh, experience of being made a disciple um, that jesus has already demonstrated in their lives which he calls upon when he calls them to go and make disciples and not only this but too he very clearly lays out what it means to make disciples um he, he, he talks about, specifically for, for any of the disciples who were with him for the past three years, and, and, and maybe they were like falling asleep or something like that, he kind of recaps what it means to make a disciple. And you see this in verses 19 and 20. It says, "'Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.'" making disciples is not complex. It's not rocket science. This is rocket science. So there should be a slide up there, you see that? All right, so what you're looking at is, uh, what is this? Uh, It's Sokolsky's rocket equation, or really the ideal rocket equation. So it's this mathematical equation that describes the motion of vehicles that follow the basic principle of a rocket, a device that can apply acceleration to itself by using thrust, And what it's doing is it's excelling parts of its mass at high velocity and can thereby move due to the conservation of momentum. See, what happens is that the force of a rocket dramatically changes during a typical flight. So During powered flight, the propellants of the propulsion system are constantly being exhausted from the nozzle. So as a result, the weight and the mass of the rocket is constantly changing. And because of the changing mass, you can't use the standard form of Newton's second law of motion to determine the acceleration and velocity of the rocket. And so this figure allows you uh, to see as a derivation of the change in velocity during the powered flight while accounting for that change of mass in the rocket over time. All right, so go make disciples of that, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying at all in this. This is the equation for making disciples. Making disciples is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them To observe all that I have commanded to you. See, these two components of discipleship are often understood as orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is the correct belief or or having sound doctrine, and orthopraxy is having correct practice or sound living. And we talked about the importance of sound doctrine last week and, and the exhortation to maintain a correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus emphasizing it here in the first part of the algorithm, when he says to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the many places in Scripture where you see the triune God, though here it's incredibly explicit. And it's with the purpose of communicating the the importance of rightly knowing God. It's important to know God the right way. The gospel without God the Father or without God the Son or without God the Holy Spirit is not the gospel. And so the first part of making a disciple is to teach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to help people have a right understanding of who God is, of what sin is, of what Jesus' role is, and how salvation works. And if you're a Christian and, and, and you don't know the gospel or, or you don't feel like you have a firm grasp on these things or how to communicate them, like, that's okay. That's okay. There's absolutely no shame in that. But instead of letting that be the reason why you don't make disciples, which is a legitimate reason, like, if you don't know how to communicate these things, then there's no expectation for you then to go and make disciples. Um, I would encourage you to, to lean in, to humble yourself, and to learn. Like, you can do it. We have a resource on our website, mercyhouse365.org respond, which you can go to, not right now, but on your phone, you can go and, and you can see the gospel being laid out in a way that's really easy to communicate, really easy to understand, and that's, that page is not just for non-Christians to come and take a look at it. I think it's a helpful resource for anybody to just see, okay, how do I communicate this to somebody? There's also a small book in that back corner. It's literally called, What is the Gospel? And it's definitely readable. It's really thin. I want you to take one. Take a few. I think we have a bunch of them. Lois, let's make sure there's a bunch out there, but take them after the service, and it's a great resource for just really understanding and being able to start communicating the gospel. We also have discipleship groups, which I'll talk about more in a minute, but these are groups that go through six uh, weeks of of doctrine, and it helps people establish themselves in orthodoxy or, or sound gospel belief but also as a training ground for being able to equip people to then teach that. And so we make disciples by teaching the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. You make disciples by teaching gospel living. Look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So where orthodoxy is having sound gospel doctrine, orthopraxy is practicing sound gospel living. Now, there's lots of ways that one can approach this question of what should the life of a Christian look like. There's plenty of books and podcasts, and even the bulk of our sermons at Mercy House are meant not only to preach sound doctrine, but also to clarify sound gospel living as well. But the reality is that all of these resources that we have are derivative of the example that we're given in the scriptures themselves. Jesus says that we ought to teach the people that we're discipling to observe that all that observe all that He has commanded to them, verse twenty. And so, the ultimate visual for what this orthopraxy looks like is seen in the ministry of Christ Himself, as it's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. That's why these gospels are critical reading for any believer. This is another thing that is communicated really well in this book, Family Discipleship. It says in this book, discipleship is both what we heard Jesus command and what we saw Jesus doing. Discipleship is essential to both the message and the method of Christ. Jesus' method of discipleship was not intended to be unique. It was prototypical. He invited people to follow and live alongside him so they might lead others in like manner. He could have started a formal training school, but instead he built his training around time in his presence as he exercised his trust in the Father, practiced relentless love for all people, and carried out his mission with the disciples. If we want to have orthopraxy, and to grow in sound gospel living, and teach others how to do that as well, we we need to look no further than Jesus himself. What the author is getting at here is that Jesus lived among his disciples and showed them through his presence and through his fellowship what it looked like to practically live like a disciple. There wasn't just uh, classroom time, uh, but there were constantly field trips, It was an incredibly hands-on learning experience, both with him teaching them sound doctrine on the mountainside with sermons and lectures and probably countless uh, late-night talks, and they're talking everywhere they go, but he's also leading them through very practical disciplines of faith, how to pray, talking about how to have a quiet time, interpersonal conflict with one another, teaching them how to exercise demons, how to love the broken people in the world, how to share the gospel. Jesus showed them how to live a sound gospel life, which, of course, included the making of disciples. And Jesus shows us how we are to make disciples, and that's by sharing our lives with those whom we are discipling. And not just spending time teaching and walking through uh, sound doctrine with them, which is obviously a huge part of what it means to be a disciple, but if we, ne- if we neglect to walk people through sound gospel living, we might make Bible scholars, but we're not going to make disciples of Jesus. The best way to to teach sound gospel living is to exercise sound gospel living and, and to invite those whom we're discipling to see that alive and active in our lives. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we have to have it all together, but what it does mean is being willing to be vulnerable to be transparent with how God is working in our lives, and to be humble in that process. And there's a lot of things that could be said uh, on this. And we, through our discipleship groups and other opportunities for discipleship, do flesh this out a lot more. But the last thing I do want to point out is that making disciples is a process. It's a process. Jesus doesn't call them to initiate conversions as if the mission is a singular experience or a single point in time in someone's life but making disciples is tedious. It is time-consuming work. Jesus modeled it as a 24-7 job, living among those whom He discipled. He was sharing His time, His resources, His energy, His really everything with those whom He discipled. And Jesus loved His disciples, and He modeled what it looked like to disciple them in a hands-on experience what we see from that is that discipleship is costly. It's not easy. It's costly. And if we maintain the priorities of this world, it's also incredibly inconveniencing and all the other things that we're trying to get done. So it's not a surprise then that a lot of us struggle to make disciples. And so while the equation for discipleship is simple, the process is hard. So how can we encourage ourselves to answer this calling in our lives? This is the last thing that we'll touch on this morning before we end. How do we motivate ourselves to make disciples? I think it's done one way um, to understand this in in, in four words. Pray, obey, trust, and worship. Pray, obey, trust, and worship. Pray. Pray. Both for the inward compassion for others And that compassion is ultimately what drove jesus in his ministry of making disciples he wasn't checking off a box it wasn't just a spiritual discipline that he wanted to do because he needed to he loved the people that he reached with his discipleship so pray that your heart would change in compassion for others but also pray for external opportunities to form relationships with those who can be who we can make uh, as disciples I think one of the best things about making disciples is also the relationship that it builds with God that's to be enjoyed in prayer. And so there's a sweetness to prayer when we're on mission, relying on God to fulfill this duty in our own lives, not out of our own energy and effort, but by the supernatural working of Him. So don't miss out on this one. Pray. Second is to obey. That's not a very uh, pleasant word today, but we obey. We obey. We hear and we receive Jesus' words as an authoritative command, not just as a mere suggestion, like, hey, maybe you should go make disciples, but yeah, as a command, and then we do it. One commentator talked about how he said, the great commission is a matter of sheer obedience. <laughs> That's not as funny to you, I guess. It was funny to me. <laughs> like, it, it's kind of like a very blunt, uh, blatant statement. And so we consider that this is not just mindless obedience over a meaningless command, that this obedience is to the mission of our God, which is really an obedience that leads to further faith and further joy. Some of us might be saying, I'm in a really spiritually dry season, or like, I, I don't really feel close to God during the season, which I don't want to diminish. But what I would challenge is that it, it might be because we're not doing what God is calling us to do. Obedience in making disciples does not just make God happy. It's actually good for our souls. It's what we're called to do, it's what we're made to do. And there's also a special blessing that's attached to it, which leads into trust. So, what we can do is we can find comfort in the promise of Jesus. Look at the last sentence of verse 20. Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What an astounding statement! from Jesus Himself. There is special blessing that's directly attached to His command to make disciples. Another commentator said, those who obey the command to go and make disciples are the ones who can rightly lay claim to the promises of verse 18 and 20. The presence and the authority of Jesus are specifically attached to His command to fulfill the Great Commission. So, trust that this is true and trust that the promise that is made is something that you get to grasp onto and to hold as you step out in making disciples. And the last is worship. Worship. We've got pray, obey, trust and worship. This is where the passage begins. With belief and worship of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're with us this morning or you're on the live stream, this is where your journey begins. This missionary God has sent His missionary Son to rescue you from your sin and to give you eternal life in relationship with Him. If you want that this morning, it's yours. That's the free gift of grace available to you, and I want to encourage you to receive it. And there's going to be a few of us back there with little lanyards to say, how can we pray for you? I want to encourage you to come to the back and ask for some prayer. We'd love to talk to you about how to take those next steps in faith, if that's what you want to do this morning. If you're online, you can go to mercyhouse365.org respond, and that also gets you connected with someone at our church uh, to just talk with somebody about what it means to place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, I want to encourage you this morning, not just to make disciples, but first and foremost to worship Jesus Christ. If you're hearing this sermon and you feel convicted about not making disciples, let that conviction draw you into the presence of Christ. If you're hearing this sermon this morning and you feel resentful, you feel bitter, or you're exhausted in your discipling of others, draw yourself into the presence of God and worship. This is what happens when we take communion every Sunday. Jesus took the bread and, after having broken it, said, "This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And after supper, he took the cup and said, "This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for many. Do this as often as you rem- do this as often as you do it <laughs> in remembrance of me." Sorry, I had a brain fart there. When we we take communion, when we take communion, we're reminded of the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of His great love for us and His great, and in many ways inconvenient, sacrifice for us to enable us to be in relationship with Him and to enable discipleship of Him in our own lives. Discipleship begins with belief and worship. And as we take communion this morning, we have this opportunity to encounter the living Jesus and to respond in worship. And out of that, we pray, we obey, we trust, and we live out this calling on our lives. Mercy House, we have such a unique opportunity here to respond to Jesus' great commission. Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. Here at Mercy House, you can do that No passport required. The nations converge here in this valley. In a few weeks, students will be coming from all parts of the United States, every corner of the world. Others in our local community are right here and just are waiting to be reached. And some are going to be coming right through those doors. They're going to be intellectually curious. They're going to be spiritually hungry. It's kind of like fish jumping into the boat. And so don't believe the lies, Mercy House. Don't believe the lies that say, I don't have enough time to do this, that I'm not good at making disciples, or right? I don't know enough in order to make disciples. Maybe the lies say, I'm not, a, I'm not a people person. Maybe the lies are discipling is for the professionals or those who are really good at it, or maybe discipling is for the younger generation, right, who, who need some discipleship and mentorship. Don't listen to those lies, our discipleship groups are a program that, that is designed to equip and connect you with people to disciple. So join them this fall. It's not the only way to make disciples. It's not perfect by any means, but it can be a great place for you to start. And if you've done them before, I want to encourage uh, you to lead one as well. And you can learn more by going to mercyhouse365.org dgs. Another way to respond is by discipling our little ones with Mercy House kids. Take that card, fill it out, sign it up. That is a way to make disciples, to, to fulfill this great commissioning in our own lives. So, Mercy House, this morning my question to you is, will you answer the calling that is on your life? Will you join us in taking up our heavenly vocation to make disciples? Let's pray father we thank you for this morning and i thank you for the people that are here we thank you for your word that is powerful that is authoritative father i pray for those who are struggling this morning those whose hearts are hard whose ears are blocked up we pray that you would penetrate hearts and unblock ears so that people can experience and worship you lord i pray that that worship would drive us as a community to reach the nations with your gospel. Father, I pray that this verse, though convicting and challenging, would not go in one ear and out the other. But as, the, as it is the primary directive that you give us before you went back into heaven and for us to uh, continue to fulfill until the day that you come back, Lord, would we take this seriously? Would we as a church take it seriously? And Father, in that obedience, would you use that to grow your kingdom here in this valley? that our church would be a light in the darkness, others would experience freedom in you. God, we can't do this without you. This is not a matter of picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying harder, but it is a matter of turning our hearts to you in worship. Father, I pray that that would happen. God, we love you. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.